0: All right, welcome back to the struck aerospace engineering podcast. I'm your co-host Dan Blewett on today's show. We're gonna talk about some of the tough PR Southwest is going through at the moment. A lot of delays, a lot of cancellations. Uh, So we'll talk about some of the um, the issues there. Uh, We're gonna talk about uh, emissions in aviation. A good article um, about many different ways. So we'll talk about the the myriad ways that aviation might be able to continue to cut emissions and be a little more green. Uh, We'll talk about FedEx delivery drones. Um, and whether captured CO two can be used for jet fuel, so also an interesting uh, idea there. Uh, on the EVTOl sector, we'll talk about the Tetra Buy and Fly uh, Kit EVTOl. So coming out of Japan, uh, the Japanese uh, company Tetra wants to sell these um, with the uh, you know the, ex- the experimental sort of um, designation. We'll talk about the UK's uh, EVTOl Safety Group and how LA is getting ready for their urban air mobility uh, shift so alan let's jump into it southwest had a pretty rough week a lot of people are unhappy with them uh, i also am skeptical that they're really this amazing customer service company that they've sort of been made out to be I mean, that's just their marketing but i haven't had great southwest experiences in the last three four years um, and this is really driving a lot of people away from them currently i mean it sounds like there's a lot of contention about the actual cause of these thousands of flight cancellations. And it's confusing to consumers uh, because, you know, other airlines in the same area didn't cancel this many flights. So they're saying, well, if this was really an FAA um, air traffic control issue and a weather issue, which is what Southwest claimed, they're like, why was it only you or your airline?
1: Yeah, it's a really good point, Dad. I'm not sure there's a good answer for it yet. The th- when the uh, initial news started circulating on Twitter about, Southwest having problems, it seemed to be at first related to the the FAA and the uh, air traffic control that maybe some of the air traffic controllers had gone on strike or had a sick out sort of in northern uh, Florida and Jacksonville area was the story. And then that rapidly changed to the pilots are having a sick out. And that changed to Southwest saying there was no pilot action. It it was some sort of internal process that had a problem. And, And so far, weirdly enough, we have not seen any any official news source put out anything that makes up any sense. So uh, the you know I think it was recent, wasn't it? Recently, United had a problem or Delta had a problem with one of their mainframes going down and the, just not having the ability to actually uh, plug in tickets and get people on airplanes. Like everything just kind of got obliterated there for like 24 hours. And I, I wonder if this is a little bit deeper. I mean, the the skeptic me says. If it's something a little more broader, like uh, a hack, you know, somebody into the computer software system and shutting them down and ruining their ability to to control where the airplanes are, that would shut down an airline pretty fast. Uh, And it also would bring in the FBI and they they would tell everybody to shut up about it until they could figure out what was happening. Uh, So it seems... That still seems possible, doesn't it, Dan? Maybe it's some sort of cyber cyber attack?
0: Um, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's within the realm of possibility. I mean, because there aren't really any concrete answers, like you said. And that's what I think pissed so many people off. Because, you know, if it's weather related, no one gets a refund. Like, you don't get any money. But if it's an operational problem or a staffing problem, they should be you know, compensating people for being stuck and for missing out on weddings and all these other important things that they're going to, you know? And I think that's where the contention arises because there's a lot of times where you, you know, I've been delayed or canceled and it's like sunny out and you're like, how is this a weather thing? Like you said, this is weather. Well, it's like not even, where is it? And I realized that it, that could be at a different part of the country, but again, the other airlines didn't seem to have significant problems. So, it seems like there's something else going on. And I think the good thing is that because this was got so much, um, press coverage that it doesn't seem like they can hide from it. And I, I don't know who, I mean, who keeps airlines on the up and up? Why can't they just say, oh, it's always weather. It seems like, like who's governing them? Who's, who's regulating saying, no, this wasn't weather. You need to pay people. I mean, is there a active situation there where they have to go through some sort of channel and say this is why we're canceling and someone has to like check off and say yep you can not refund them or you have to refund them
1: yeah i i don't know if it goes through a standard legal process or if it's going through the department of transportation that's a really good question because i'm not sure about that my my gut tells me that lawyers start filing cases in small claims court and then that kicks in the system and then everybody starts paying out and but but i think for the most part uh I think Southwest just got overwhelmed. And anytime there's some large uh, flight incident with that many employees, like someone's going to say something. Somebody has to know something. The problem right now is that no one's talking. Like there's zero news about it, which makes me feel like there's been an imposed lockdown on what to say on everybody's case, pilots, uh, flight attendants, line mechanics, FAA, uh, air traffic control, no one is saying anything that of any importance and doesn't make any sense right now. So, you know, barring some weird scenario, I, I, I still think it's some sort of computer problem at the moment.
0: Yeah, I mean, I saw on Twitter one person, of course, you never know the accuracy of Twitter, but one person said, hey, my husband's a pilot for Southwest. This isn't a sick out. It's not a, a strike situation. So like that's one person. Um, I know the the FAA said there's no air traffic control problems. You know, they came out and said that in a tweet, in an official tweet. So, yeah, I don't know. That's why it's been so confusing, because someone's not being truthful. So you're right. Maybe there is a a black swan somewhere in there that we're not privy to yet.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And these things take like 30 days before they start to rear their heads, because they want to try to figure out what's happening before it becomes public, right? That's part of the, the way that the FBI tends to handle these things. They try to want to deal with it under the table as much as they can so it doesn't get out in the public so they can have more room to maneuver. But we'll see. We'll see. We'll know in a week or so.
0: Well, moving on, uh, Dimensional Energy uh, is a company that's trying to take carbon capture from the atmosphere and turn it into jet fuel. Um, you know, Alan, we we've talked about this on our other podcast, Uptime, about renewable energy. And you were kind of explaining that there's not a huge market right now for the carbon that we're going to pull out of the atmosphere for that CO2. Um, But this company seems like they've got an answer for that. Do you think this is a viable thing?
1: Well, it is interesting because what they have right now is essentially a small trailer with a (laughs) a parabolic mirror (laughs) to make something really hot and provide a lot of energy to create hydrogen and then... Merge it with CO2 to make fuel, make a hydrocarbon. That's essentially what they're doing. They're making a a synthetic hydrocarbon from the air and the sun. So it's like the most simplistic thing you can think of in terms of a process. But they're in the desert making a couple of gallons of this a day, something like that. Uh so it's not it's not a lot of not a lot of uh quantity yet, so it seems pretty early. And did you did you look at the the pictures they had of what the, the future would envision if they were gonna really ramp up production with the big solar panel and the and all the solar panels in the ring and then the tower up top and all the solar panels are providing energy to this heat source at the top? Did just does that make sense? Like it's like totally free almost in, in terms of the way it's powered. Yeah.
0: It's interesting. I, I'm certainly no engineer. You, I guess you wonder like how they scale that kind of stuff. Like if that's it almost seems like a James Bond, you know, like gigantic mirror. It's like, you know, you can fry a whole country if it's big enough. Um, but yeah, it, it does seem like they're trying their best. And they said they could ho- hopefully get costs down to be less than a gallon um, if they got to scale in the future. That seems like a long way off, but, um, but yeah. Pretty interesting.
1: Crazy low, right? Though never. And if you're, if you're. On the marketing side of that, you, you don't want to ever say it's a, a dollar a gallon. It's too it's too low, right? You're not going to make any money there. You want to make money at the same price that standard Jet A is sold at. That's, you want to be at that same level or maybe a penny or two below it. That's all you have to do from a marketing standpoint. Just be 1% less and everybody will switch over if it, as long as it's compatible with the airplanes. That's all it takes. So somebody got out of line somewhere on the marketing side. You should never say, oh, it's... Fifty percent lower. It's seventy percent lower cost. No, no, it'll never. It will that that will not never happen.
0: Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Um, I, I, yeah, I guess you wonder how much of a markup they'll have to have. Or I mean, you know, because I know some industries dry. You know, like grocery stores have a very small markup because hey, there's tons of competition. I don't know if the grocery industry is regulated, but there's it's well known there's a razor thin margin on food, right? Um, but if you can make jet fuel for a dollar a gallon and sell it for four dollars a gallon is that fine is that within regulations because i assume right now there's probably not a huge margin on it but I, I have no idea what it costs to manufacture you know kerosene jet a fuel
1: yeah it's it's not well it's a it's a decent industry because there's there's so many players in it but i, I think if you're trying to compete with uh, standard <laughs> drilled from the ground uh, distilled jet a you're gonna have a hard time competing with. It with that because the infrastructure is already paid for, right? All, all the refineries and all the people and all the stuff and all the trucks and all the, all the in- mechanisms to to make and deliver this product are already in place and have been paid for, for 50 years. So you're trying to compete with that. And that's, that's where your costs kind of explode. You may be able to make the hydrocarbon, but it's all the other stuff you got to go do, right? You get, so then that's, that's why I say a dollar a gallon seems just completely improbable.
0: You wonder what other things go into that, that cost per gallon. Like you said, I mean, transportation tankers. I mean, how much of that goes into that cost? I'm not sure. Like, I don't know how much that is on the burden of a company that, that makes it, you know, a, a big, um, uh, fossil fuel company or is it, yeah, I don't know. I, I assume that's probably to, to the plane, like to their gas tank, fuel tank.
1: Well, yeah, there's no way. It's there's no way. It's to be a buck to the <laughs> to the airplane. No way. Uh, just transportation costs alone. We're going to add a, a bunch of dollars onto that per gallon price. And I think that's that's the key here, right? When you when you're, here here's the thing. If you, are, you created this really cool engineering process, which is called an engineering process for the simplicity's sake. I had this really cool engineering process, and it's going to save a bunch of money. Okay, cool. And now I need investment. I need a lot of investment. I need millions of dollars to get this thing up and running. Well, the investors are looking around going, Well, I need a return on my investment. How how am I ever going to get that if you're selling it for a buck a gallon, right? I need you I need I need the uh, European Union to, to mandate it at ten bucks a gallon, okay? <laughs> and then I'm in. And and that's that's the real situation, is that a lot of a lot of these great engineering things get driven into the ground from the investment side, you can't ever get to scale because you can't get enough people to get a 10 X multiple on their investment. So it, it goes away and that's just part of the deal, right? So it's not just the technology, it's the ability to make it into a business, a profitable business that you can get investment because it's just going to be a huge amount of infrastructure.
0: Yeah. And that's, that's an interesting point. actually, I was just casually watching, uh, I don't watch a lot of TV. But I was just casually watching shark tank while out of town this weekend. And that's one of the, you know, those investors that you, you see a good idea and they have a good product, but then they're like, well, you know, getting this into like a retail store, it, it adds so many more middlemen to the process where they're like, oh, even if it seems like they initially have a good, yeah, I make this widget for $10 and I sell it for 30. You're like, wow, that's great. They're making $20 per widget. But then they're like, no, you don't have enough profit built, you don't have enough margin built in to go to retail. And it's like, really like it's it, again like the people that know those industries know how many mouths there are to feed on the pipeline to the final consumer and there's a lot of them and uh that's a yeah it's a it's a good point you raise it's an interesting it's a whole it's just I, I think we as consumers and of course you know the there's gonna probably be less middlemen for fuel right there's gonna be more direct like maybe less hands exchange and in, in between I'm not sure but but yeah you're right like there's got to be okay if, if this is what the number it is where we can make our money back and we can have a good uh, return on investment, then you got to start to step it and walk it back and say, well, you're ma- It costs too much, even though it seems cheap but right now, you're not, you're still not cheap enough. So yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So I guess we'll see how that plays out. And of course, um, a g- good, interesting article about all the different ways aviation can save money, um, and reduce their, their carbon footprint and just their, their impact on the climate in general. Um, the one, you know, we talked about, you know, sustainable airline fuels um all these different types but one of the interesting ones i thought you know efficient planes and a lot of these alan you've talked about hey they're already trying to do all this stuff like when we talk about saving the planet they don't care about saving the planet as much as they care about saving money and saving money also saves the planet like you said these better jet engines airlines are upgrading their planes upgrading their engines upgrading everything they can to be more efficient to use less fuel So it's already those goals, like you said, are aligned, not necessarily because of the same end goal, but because of the same profit goal, right, being efficient with your money. Um, But one that stuck out that we haven't really talked about is flight routes, and how maybe some um, just better software and maybe some AI, we want to use AI for everything, I don't know. Um, But there's there's trials going on that show that maybe some flight routes can be optimized to still save more fuel.
1: Yeah, if you if you look at a Navigation chart, and you can Google an aviation navigation chart. There are corridors in the sky, and that's the way that they manage traffic for the most part. Like if I'm going from Phoenix to Chicago, there are a set of corridors that the the FAA wants to pass you through so they can, one, keep track of you, make sure you're in the right place, and two, make sure that you keep radio communications the whole time. So there's a set of uh, waypoints that you fly over. Uh, if you ever see airplanes fly over a lot of airplanes fly over a certain place on the on the planet. Oh,
0: all the time here in D.C. It's very easy to tell what the corridors are. Yeah, right. You'll see a stream of planes all day long. Yep.
1: Right. And so that that may be, not be the most efficient route from your A to B. It may not be the fastest, the fastest, the least uh, fuel burn route. But you got other factors you got to consider here. Uh, you know, and, and in some places, there's just terrain that you want to stay away from, like especially around the Rockies. There's just certain places you want to go. So the, the, the kicker here is, I think, uh, that you could reduce the amount of fuel burn, but just it adds to the complexity if you're an air traffic controller, which is important here to make sure we've got people in the right airplanes in the right places at the right times, so that we don't have an accident. And I guess it kind of makes sense. If, if you've been on a recent flight, if you remember, if, you, if, if you've been on a recent flight, you may notice that as you're landing in particular, it used to go in these tiers. You used to be at like 30,000 feet, 20,000 feet, 10,000 feet, and you kind of go, you, you, you know you're at these different tiers. A lot of that has changed, especially at smaller airports. Uh, you don't do that anymore. You basically come from altitude down to the ground. That's fuel burn. And that's a way to reduce the fuel burn. Uh, So the airlines had pushed for that a long time ago. And I I do believe that's in place because I haven't noticed the tears as much at my local airport. Uh, And so the airlines are already pushing for this. If the airlines can save, you know, a thousand gallons of fuel, they're going to totally do it. It's a question of the other factors. How do I keep the airlines safe and don't run two airplanes into one another uh, or get somebody not where they're supposed to be, particularly at, you know 18,000 feet and above is where you get automatic FAA oversight um, air traffic control comes in right so um, to get in that airspace you you're you're monitored the whole time and that's where they put you on these routes you on these corridors
0: yeah so it sounds like this is probably you know you think of a lot of industries that have just had to be efficient for variables a b and c like well there's all safety and you know timeliness etc But now it seems like maybe they're asking, and I don't know who they is, but just, we, as a, as a species are asking air traffic controllers perhaps to say, all right, can you now plan these routes with another variable, which is sustainability, carbon footprint, that sort of thing. So if you can keep safety the same, if you can keep, you know, time, timeliness and, and route efficiency, the same, but can you now also solve for this other variable of reducing fuel burn a little bit more or whatever it is so. I guess that makes that makes sense. But do you think there's a whole lot to squeeze out there? Is, is there probably not? Probably not a lot.
1: No, I, I think for the most for most airline routes, they're pretty they're flying a pretty efficient A to B right now because they're trying to save fuel. And airlines are always pushing for that, so they're going to find the shortest way to get to A to B. And in fact, and and you know they'll they'll yeah. There's a, if you ever really watch where your airplane flies, you realize like. They're, they're saving fuel here and there in little tiny places. They don't idle so much. Sometimes they shut down one engine, right? So they're constantly trying to save fuel. So I don't think there's going to be a lot of changes in the way we operate today uh, just because of the, the congested areas where you are, you know, D.C., New York, Los Angeles, Houston, <laughs> Dallas. There's just so many airplanes coming in and out. You got to have some standardization where people are flying and when. Yeah. So I think we're to me we're i feel like we're really close to being at maximum efficiency in terms of the way we operate
0: um so moving on alan you've discussed how it seems like uh, drone deliveries have left the news cycle a little bit they've gotten less press in the last i don't know maybe year as compared to maybe 2019 2020 Um, but it sounds like fedex express which is a fedex uh, subsidiary has begun a drone delivery trial in ireland and it looks like this has not gone away, that it's going to continue on. But, you know, like a big company like Amazon, we heard a lot of news about it, very little news about it now. Why do you think FedEx is picking this back up?
1: Well, I think it's interesting where FedEx is doing it. They're doing it in Ireland. I haven't heard much about it in the States. So I think they were doing some work down in Memphis on site at the, at the Memphis airport from get from one terminal to the other terminal. But this is a much larger process here uh, and there was a really good podcast about this and and I have to apologize cuz I don't remember what podcast it was otherwise i credit them but they had a, a someone from Ireland talking about how this is all coming together and how they had to work with the local towns to to put our uh, put everything together um, regul- regulation wise to make this happen but they what they were trying to do was get from basically an airport to a port like a seaport that's what it sounded like and to drive there was like an hour but they could take this drone and get stuff get packages there within 15 minutes so it's a h- huge reduction in the amount of fuel to move a package uh and it's obviously much faster so they were just trying it out to get an understanding of how the different organizations in ireland work together and how because uh, the the drone was going past the line of sight so you couldn't see it anymore you, know, you could put this thing at play and it just It goes, right? So you can't watch it the whole time. So it's a little risky from that sense. You don't have any eyeballs on it. But I think the the concept is really getting vetted out, weirdly enough, outside the United States. Go figure. Uh, Because I do think there are places on the planet, and I, I think Ireland's one of them, United parts of the United States are the same way, where it's hard to get from A to B on the roads, uh, just because of the way the roads are, because there's, in Ireland, it's so dang beautiful, you know, you don't want to put a road through the middle of, of uh, beautiful farmland there. So the, the roads tend to be a little, not as uh, A to B, like they are in some parts of the States. So the, the concept is really good, and I think FedEx is quietly, somebody at FedEx is quietly behind the scenes doing these little experiments, and, and I think Dan, what's going to happen is Whatever they figure out, it's going to get translated back to other places, maybe back in the states, which would be tremendously cool.
0: Yeah. So this company, um, Sky, Skyports, which was conducting these uh, these trials for FedEx, is it sounds like yeah, like you said, they're just dropping them between an airport and an actual port under 15 minutes. So just these little short haul trips that that makes sense. So. Yeah, I still think this has a lot of potential. It just, you wonder now if the world is ever going to be this sort of flying drones everywhere and, you know, like flocks of birds, which it kind of felt like that was going to be our future back in like 2019. Amazon was talking about, they're like, oh God, here it comes. And it's just going to be drones, drones, drones everywhere. Um, But yeah, it'll probably end up somewhere in the middle. But I I can't imagine that drones aren't going to become as they as their battery range increases as the automation increases i can't imagine that they're not going to be pretty useful especially out more in the country probably less so in cities because it's just going to be a nightmare and you know more restricted airspace and stuff like that and safety concerns um but out in the suburbs and in the country i think like you said it, it probably makes a lot of sense where there's less a to b truck routes etc cetera, etc cetera.
1: right you don't have a whole truckload to go out to some place in the middle of nebraska where i'm from you may load up a, a larger drone with enough for the pack with all the packages for that day send it out there it's faster than a truck probably less expensive too so that's a cool concept Uh, it's gonna have to get vetted out now you're right i I haven't seen any amazon drones uh in massachusetts at all we were in we're in boston quite often i I have not seen anything about it uh which is crazy because you think that'd be one of the places they'd be trying it
0: so moving on to our evtol segment today Uh, first we're gonna talk about Tetra. So this is a Japanese company and they are planning to deliver, um, an EVTOL by the end of 2022, which seems ambitious, but this MK five aircraft that they're talking about is a lightweight, um, you know, for pilots under 200 pounds. So I'm right on the cusp So Alan. I'm not gonna be, I'm not gonna be buying one of these. I'd want to be well below 200 pounds personally. Um, but it says it's got a single cruise prop, um, on the back. It's got a 32 lift fans. Uh, 13.5 kilowatt-hour battery, top speed of 100 miles per hour, and it looks like a range of about 100 miles. Um, but this is going after that, you know, that you know, pilots can just buy this, sort of build this kit, and uh, go for it. So, is this what is this what EVTOLs are going to going to be without you know in the personal sector?
1: Yeah, I don't know yet. I think this is a real interesting development because I think there are sort of two aircrafts really keyed up for this space at the moment This tetra obviously and then i think kitty hawk is also in this space kitty hawk's talking about making a a, uh an automatic pilot situation where it's controlled by computers or ground uh so there's no pilot in it similar thing here uh, with tetra but tetra has a quote-unquote pilot and it's experimental so the 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 aircraft in order to get uh, any usefulness out of the vehicle, it can't be that large, right? You can't, when you get to five, six people, the aircraft just explodes in terms of size and power usage of the whole thing. And it, and then you sort of lose the, the beauty of being small and being able to land different places. So I think that's why Kitty Hawk and Tetra are all, all talking the same language at the moment, which is if we want to land this in our driveway, we got to reduce the size. And reduce the size means they can only carry so many people at the moment. The thing about being experimental is there's it I don't want to say it's not safe. It just seems less safe on some level. So it's gonna be a kit belt thing. And the the for the most part, in the United States, the kits have turned out relatively well. And a lot of there's a lot of kit airplanes in the States. And and they have pretty good safety record quite honestly you wouldn't think it but they do but this is like another level right you got 30 plus electric motors with propellers spinning on them and you should if everybody has a chance to go look at the youtube video of of the mark 5 flying it's got this canard and a, a lower canard with a bunch of motors on it and a, a high wing behind the pilot with a bunch of motors on it and the the everything looks a little shaky <laughs> that's the way i had to describe it Uh, Even during the little flight test, it looked like the forward canard got pretty close to the ground. Uh, All you need is to hit a prop into the dirt and you're going to have problems there. So I think there's a little more homework to do yet in terms of making it safe for the average Joe to go fly. Don't, don't, Don't you think so, Dan? It's still a little early.
0: Well, yeah, it, it just, it looks fundamentally different than all the ones we've been talking about, you know, like lighter and smaller, you know, one, one person in there, but also those, um, lift lift props, those don't have a duct around it. So you could walk by and slice your leg, you know, it looks like little knives sticking out. So that's a safety concern, but you know, maybe they'll do something to box those in. maybe not, maybe you just need to know where you are in space. Obviously you could walk into a propeller of a regular airplane, right? So there's some level of uh, safety that's on the pilot, I guess, but, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I know the FAA will inspect and register these when the, the kit is done right when it's built. But beyond that, just a lot, a lot, a lot more moving parts maybe than a regular plane.
1: Yeah, sure. you got so many motors. Yeah. So many motors moving, moving around. I don't, no if there's any i assume there's some logic if a motor dies the opposing motor shuts off so you don't get this imbalance and there's when you start you've got that many rotating propellers fault cases uh, from a safety perspective come into play and how you handle that and usually a kit plane is not designed like that to deal with a lot of, of upsets and faults and uh, different failure modes it's not single engine a uh, high wing airplane, like most kits are, or low wing airplane, like most kits are, pretty straightforward. Motors turning, you're fine. Motors not turning, you glide and you land. On something that's a, a vertical takeoff and landing, that really changes a good bit.
0: So, speaking of safety, over in the UK, the uh, Civil Aviation Authority is establishing a consortium for EVTOL safety. So, it'll be called the EVSLG, the safety, uh, EV2L safety leadership group, and, you know, founding members include Joby, Joby Aviation, vertical airspace, uh, the UK air accidents investigation branch and a number of others. Um, so I, I assume Alan, we're going to continue to see more bodies like this consortiums, whatever you want to call them. Um, just to sit down and talk about issues. I mean, what, what do you think the main purpose of this is?
1: I think the UK is taking their uh, newfound independence and and using it to their advantage in this particular case because they're not part of uh, the EU anymore and they're not necessarily tied. And there's a lot of uncertainty here yet with EASA. You know, the UK is really, well, it has this known. CAA is back. You know, the, the CAA is back. So they have their certification um, group inside the United Kingdom, in which used to certify airplanes all the time. And then when they merged with the rest of the European Union, that went away. And uh, they, they were one office of men, multiple offices. And now they're back again as their own special entity. The thing about it is, uh, as a relatively smaller country, but needing a lot of electric vehicles, because I think they probably could use it to get, from Scotland to London, that's not an easy place to get to. And there's a lot of short hops there. Vertical uh, takeoff and aircraft uh, landing aircraft would make a lot of sense. Is that they're trying to take the lead on this and set the standards. So the UK is trying to set the standards uh, ahead of the EU and get everybody on board. And most likely, they will probably do that. You know, the first one to market is usually one who defines what the marketplace looks like. And the first one that can establish the regulations is also the first one that, that gets airplanes certified and get flying. And then everybody has to kind of mostly follow that. Uh, so the UK is utilizing themselves, their their ability to maneuver quickly because they're smaller the Niassa, they can maneuver quickly and set this safety board up and, and try to get some EVTOLs rolling. And, it, and it, in this dream scenario, I think, they're hoping that they're going to get some manufacturing over in the U.K. for electric aircraft. I think that would make a lot of sense. Also, it hasn't really happened yet because the bigger players tend to be in the United States, but it's worth a shot. And, you know, I think the aviation community in Europe, especially in the U.K., uh, if you think back to the Wright brothers, there's like the United States, and there was the United Kingdom and maybe Germany, somewhat in France in terms of the big airplane builders. so uh, they have a he- long heritage. It'd be interesting to see how this goes. You have to keep an eye on it because if Joby's participating in it, they must think it's real. Right? They don't waste time on things that don't look real and have time for it. so you know the 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 list of names that are participating in this are is pretty impressive at this point
0: speaking of that. Um, uh, LA is doing, I wouldn't say a similar thing, but LA is also getting, they're gearing up to, you know, see urban air mobility integrated into everyday life there. So they've spun out, um, urban movement labs, which came out of the office of economic development that was back in 2020. And they're not the urban movement. Labs is not dedicated just to urban air mobility, but that's one of their pieces. So they work on, uh, infrastructure for getting people moving around workforce development, stuff like that. Um, but Archer Aviation, Hyundai, they're, um, they're partners of that as well. And, you know, Joby aviation is coordinating with our movement lab lab. So, you know, they're trying to get policy in place and get the minds at work to get this going in LA. Of course, LA is not a country, but it's obviously an influential, um, part of the U S and it seems like they have their sights pretty much set on, you know, this being a, a, a premier. First place for uh, EVTOLs to come and go and be integrated into everyday life. What sticks out to you about urban movement labs?
1: Well, I think it's uh, really interesting that as a city is taking so much of, of the infrastructure process among themselves, that doesn't tend to happen in aviation so much. They don't, <laughs> you know, they set up an airport commission. Like Houston will have an airport commission. Uh, Omaha, Nebraska have an airport commission. And they manage the airport and make sure the facilities are there and make sure things are working properly. There's a fire department. Bing, 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 bing. In this particular case, uh, they're trying to figure out where these aircraft are going to land at and and what kind of zoning limitations they have. Because who knows, right? Can you imagine... Trying to change the zoning in Los Angeles—how big of a problem that's going to be, just from the bureaucracy alone. Forget about the the politics of it. Just trying to go through the ordinary steps to turn, uh, you know, a parking garage is what we're talking about—turning parking garages into landing spots. That there's a lot of code. You know, I think you and I have talked about before. There's probably fifty thousand dollars of of infrastructure per parking landing space that you have to do to make it into a quote-unquote appropriate landing space right doesn't doesn't that seem like there's so much to this it's gonna and dan what how many years do you think this is gonna take before they get this in in place
0: i don't know i mean i think they're gonna move fast i 5 10 maybe i don't know but it seems like they're gonna have to catch up with the development of these aircraft right which In five years, someone's going to have a plane that's going to need places to land, if not before that, right? Three to five, maybe? Yeah.
1: 2024, I think, is a realizable number at this point. And you're right. I think anything in the States in a big city takes about four or five years to come to reality. Unless you're just bulldozing it through by statute somehow. It's going to take that long to get all the quote-unquote partners involved to bless it. So they got a long road ahead, I think. In terms of Los Angeles and a lot of other places, um, I think their best bet is to establish basically heliports. That's going to be the right answer because that's an existing thing. And it's already zoned and defined what it looks like, what it is. You don't really want to create something out of whole cloth here. You, You would like to start with you know, 95% of the way there in code and then go, Oh, we're going to add a couple of tweaks here. You know, we're going to want to put a a charging port on it. Okay. And we we got it all figured out. Right. But starting over in that kind of city, (laughs) I think it's going to take a couple of years. It's going to be, like you said, maybe three or four years to get it done.
0: Yeah. Well, it sounds like these vertiports, a lot of them are going to be on parking decks, like top floors of parking decks, which makes sense. But again, there's a lot of stuff like fire suppression, can the deck support the extra weight how to get how do you get people up to the top quickly and easily? And mean, we've talked about that like a parking deck is not this glamorous place where you know someone who's taken these um these EVTOL flights is going to like want to climb those you know crappy stairs on the corner of each you know standard parking deck there's going to need to be some pomp, pomp and circumstance built in as well so yeah it's not going to be a quick easy thing and then figure out the needs is it a one company uses this? Is it shared? Like, how does that work? There's like so many headaches. So yeah, they've got to get going for sure. If they wait till someone announces like, Hey, we're ready to fly. It's way, way too late.
1: Way too late. Yeah, exactly.
0: And, that, and that's what I think makes this complicated is because we don't know what the business models are. We don't know who the customers are. You don't know what the demand is like. There's just so many unknowns, but if you don't prepare now, It's just not going to have any chance of being ready when when it comes down.
1: Well, yeah. And I think also, Dan, you raise a good point on the investment side. You need investment cash and a lot of it to turn this into reality. Millions and millions and millions of dollars to do this. And I'm not sure investors are going to be super happy with that. They rather sell rides (laughs) than to build infrastructure because they got so much invested in the factory and the airplanes and the pilots and everything else going and doing something uh, in say a hundred places around Los Angeles. It's going to be so costly that I think investors will probably balk at it. So this has got a long way to go.
0: Well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of Struck. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to leave us a review on Spotify, iTunes, wherever you like, and subscribe to the show on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you're listening. Thanks again for watching. And we will see you here on the next episode of the Struck Aerospace Engineering Podcast. Strike tape, WeatherGuard lightning Tech's proprietary lightning protection for radomes provides unmatched durability for years to come. If you need help with your radome lightning protection, reach out to us at weatherguardarrow.com. That's weatherguard, A E R O.com.